Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, July 20th, 2021. I'm Guy Benson, and this is the Guy Benson Show, broadcasting live from the Washington, D.C. area, and I am glad to have each and every one of you here. Thank you. We mean that. Whether you're listening live, which we always love, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday, or on the podcast, which is always free, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your free podcasts, you've got options. Uh, We're just appreciative. We are growing because of you guys, and let's keep growing with your help. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Here at the Guy Benson Show, and I mentioned our website, GuyBensonShow.com, we've got a real lineup for you today that I'm excited to share, starting later this hour with Juan Williams. Dr. Mark Siegel will be here in the next hour. I want to talk about COVID with him. There's lots of news on that front. We'll get to some of it here momentarily. Katie Pavlich, our friend and colleague, will stop by, also in our middle hour. And then Howie Kurtz on media bias. A couple really interesting stories to go over with Howie in our final hour, the happy hour, just after 5 p.m. Eastern. Let's get going with a Fox News alert and bring you stats. The case count in the United States is 34 million plus. These are confirmed cumulative cases of COVID in the United States. And like a broken record every day, I mentioned that the true number is much higher than that, but that's what we know based on testing, dating back to last March. But because we're seeing some surges, especially in areas of the country where the vaccination rates are low and overwhelmingly among unvaccinated people, cases are now up 198% in the United States of America overall almost up 200% in the last two weeks. The death toll is 608,811. The Dow got just crushed yesterday, but it's bouncing back significantly today. It's up 603 points at this hour. It's at 34,563. So it's made up almost all of the losses from yesterday thus far. The trading day ends in a little less than an hour up in New York. Now, I just want to make a point, I'm going to make several here about COVID again and the Delta variant, because the balance that I'm trying to strike is not being alarmist, not exaggerating threats, not overstating matters, but also not understating matters. I feel like I appreciate when people treat me like an adult, and I want to treat you guys as adults. I think that that is the respectful thing to do. I feel like talking down to people, scolding this sort of thing, not only is not effective, I just think 
who wants to listen to that anyway? What I'm excited to report is that there is a ton of emerging data. In fact, there is a graph that I tweeted. And if you want to go, it's hard to explain over the radio, but if you go to at Guy P. Benson on Twitter, you can just Google it. You don't have to follow me if you don't want to, but you can see my tweets. I retweeted a graph out of the U.K., which showed during the second wave of COVID over in the U.K., the correlation between rising cases and rising deaths because they were coupled. Cases would shoot up, so would deaths. And of course, it's a lagging indicator. We've talked about that now for well over a year. Usually a week or two later is when you start seeing the really severe symptoms and then deaths from the start of the cases jumping. So it lags a little bit behind. But if you line them up, right, you sort of align the timing, there is a very clear coupling of cases and deaths. The terrific news out of the UK is that in this current third wave, and they are really getting smashed with a Delta variant third wave in the UK, and they've just reopened. Freedom Day for them was yesterday. And the left is going crazy. A lot of people, uh, Boris Johnson, he's blood on his hands. He's going to get everyone killed. And I think a lot of that is hyperbole, extreme hyperbole, and also, like, what else is the government supposed to do? They've gotten as many people vaccinated as they possibly can. They've had extreme lockdowns in that country, worse than we've had here, and nationwide. And generally, the Brits are much more deferential to the government. It's part of the reason why we broke away. But even the Brits, I think, were at their breaking point. A lot of them could not handle any more delays on being able to go back to life, especially since so many of them are vaccinated. So the government has moved forward with their reopening right smack dab in the middle of this third wave. And, of course, there are concerns, and I think it's probably going to be a little bit messy for them. And I'm sure the usual suspects are going to pound away on the British government and Boris Johnson and try to make political hay out of it. I mean, they have been, as I said, much more restrictive than we have, and their death rate has been worse than ours. And you can think about all the mental health issues, all the economic problems caused by so many restrictions. I mean, that has all been a reality over in the U.K., worse than it's been here. But I got a little bit sidetracked to give additional context – What the new data and the emerging data shows, because the current, let's call it third wave in the UK, is not brand new. They've been dealing with Delta now longer, weeks and weeks longer than we have. And what is extremely exciting to see in a country that has very good vaccination rates, not perfect and they're still trying, but very good vaccination rates. And it looks like they're going to do vaccine passports mandated by the government to try to really turn the screws a little bit harder on people who have been hesitant or unwilling to get it, saying, okay, well, you can't really do much in British society if that's your choice. I'm not advocating that here at all. I'm not surprised that they're doing it over there. But in this third wave, the exciting news, and you can see it clear as day in the graph that I retweeted, in the third wave, in a post-vaccination environment, cases are decoupled from deaths. Meaning, 
the guarantee in the first couple waves, up go the cases, up come the deaths. And you can follow it very closely. It's inevitable. One would lead to another. Because you have so many people protected with the vaccines now in the U.K., cases are spiking, driven, of course, by the unvaccinated. There are also breakthrough cases among vaccinated people, although they tend to be asymptomatic or very mild symptoms. But cases are through the roof in the U.K., but deaths, and, and we now have enough time here where it's not like, oh, just, just wait a week or two. As I said, this third wave has been going on for quite a while for them. The cases climb and climb and climb, and the deaths have not. There have been deaths. I'd say some of those deaths are absolutely avoidable among unvaccinated people who may have made a decision for themselves not to get vaccinated. But if you look at the numbers overall and you look at the charts, at last, the goal of decoupling cases from deaths is being achieved, and that is because the vaccines work. That is the only explanation. That is the only explanation. If we were still waiting for vaccines, if Operation Warp Speed and other related efforts had taken much longer, and thank God they didn't, and huge credit to the Trump administration for that, but let's say the world was still waiting for safe and effective vaccines on COVID, and this third wave was wrecking the UK right now, with these number of cases, you would see horrific death tolls again. And they would correspond. You'd say, yep, this is, this is the pattern. But it's not happening. Not even close. The deaths, there are still some, but they are so much lower. They have been decoupled from case counts because of the vaccines. And you, you look at this graph, and again, it's on my Twitter, at Guy P. Benson, and the inescapable conclusion. And honestly, like, I almost have goosebumps right now out of, out of gratitude for the people who develop these vaccines. The vaccines work. The fact that you have so many millions of people now protected, immunized, in the middle of this crashing wave of a more contagious variant that's been all over the U.K. now, for weeks and weeks and weeks, and you're not seeing that corresponding spike in deaths as they saw over there tragically in round one and two. It's not happening in round three. It's one factor, and it's the vaccines. And so, to me, that is another piece of extremely powerful evidence on behalf of going and getting vaccinated. I see Steve Scalise our friend who comes on this show from time to time, the Republican whip in the House of Representatives from Louisiana, he was waiting. He was a vaccine-hesitant person, as are many Americans, as are some of you listening to me right now. Journalists would ask him, when are you going to get vaccinated? He would say, soon. They asked him throughout the fall, April, May, soon, soon. He got it over the weekend. He got his first shot finally. And they asked him why. And he gave a great answer. He said, you know, Delta variant, it's transmitting. It's, it's much more easily transmitted. And I'm talking to people who run hospitals here in the state of Louisiana, and they say overwhelmingly people coming into the hospitals with this Delta variant are people who aren't vaccinated. He said, so it seemed like it was time for me to do this. 
And he's also had the opportunity to see the data in Israel, in the UK, in the United States, see friends and family members and colleagues, of course, who got their vaccinations, that they didn't have negative side effects, that it's working. And I don't think that Steve Scalise should have been shamed because he waited a minute, right? He wanted to wait and see. I'm sure he's had access as a member of Congress and the leadership. He's probably had access to this thing all the way back into the Trump administration, right? I would guess late 2020 was when this was an opportunity for him. Maybe the very beginning of 2021. Maybe if we have him back on, we can ask him. But he's had access to this for months, six, seven months or more. That's my, that's not even a guess. I mean, you you can see when other congressional leaders got their shots. He has waited. He was not one of the never guys, never saying, oh, it's, you know, it's going to do all these horrible things and the government will have my DNA and there's, you know, 5G and all those crazy conspiracy theories. He was not one of those. And there are some of those people floating out there. You'll never convince them. But there are an awful lot of people who just wanted to wait and see. And the wait and see process played out for Steve Scalise, the congressman. He said, given what we're seeing in the state of Louisiana, what we're seeing with this significant uptick in cases, especially in red states where there's a lot of hesitant people, with the Delta variant and what's happening in the hospitals and the people he's talking to, plus his experience with his friends and family and colleagues, That has led him to decide this is the moment for him. And I think it's a great example. I've seen people dumping on him. Like, oh, you waited this long. It's so irresponsible. He represents a lot of people. And for him to go through the process and then emerge from the hesitancy and have the confidence and the conviction and sort of the the, the sense that it is now the right time and safe for him to do it and do it publicly, and there's a photo of him getting the jab, I think that is terrific. What is the point of attacking someone like that? Especially these exact same people are like, oh, these idiots all have to get vaccinated. Here is someone who might speak to those people because he's had the same experience with some of the same questions. And then he made this decision for himself. The attacks, I mean, it, it's very counterproductive. I'll just put it that way. Now you're starting to see, So that, that's my little PSA on the vaccines. You know I've been consistently pro-vaccine. I got mine as soon as I could. First shot back in April. But the graph that I've now mentioned three or four times out of the UK data, it is so arresting. It is so clear. It is so exciting about what a miracle the vaccines have been. I couldn't avoid bringing it to your attention and trying to describe it to you through the airwaves and directing you if you want to go look at it in chart form on my Twitter feed, Guy P. Benson. Now, there are other ancillary issues that are annoying me. With all that being said, including, we talked about this last week, remember Dr. Fauci said, oh yes, children three and up are going to have to wear masks. And I talked about a Harvard professor, Harvard Medical School professor, who rebutted him with three points. Well, now the American Association of Pediatrics, they are echoing Fauci saying, yep, kids three and up need to wear masks, need to wear their masks in schools. Even though the CDC has said the opposite, even though there is ample evidence that kids, especially little kids, are, thank God, safe 
from this disease. I think this is ludicrous. There was one study that was out of Germany, published in a very well-respected medical journal, that suggested that it actually could be harmful to kids to be wearing masks, breathing in their own CO2, and expressing to their parents that they felt dizzy or tired. I think this is a mistake and a huge overreach. But my guess is with the Delta variant, people freaking out, you're going to now see a lot of schools requiring masks. The good news, and this is the last point I'll make in the segment, is the American Association of Pediatrics plus the CDC and basically everyone else at this point, perhaps beyond a few dead-enders in the teachers' unions, they all agree the schools must be open in the fall, fully, in person. Masks or no masks, that's a separate debate. I've got my vantage point on that, but the schools have to open. And luckily, thank goodness, finally, it looks like all the experts are on the same page because there's been more than enough harm done to these kids. Okay, we are just getting started. There's so much to get to. We gave you the lineup. Stay tuned. Big show ahead. It is The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Ben Shapiro had a good Twitter thread about where things stand with COVID, and I agree with almost all of it. He writes, Delta is as dangerous, so as dangerous, and more transmissible than the original strain. But populations, particularly vulnerable elderly populations, are largely vaccinated, which means that diagnosed cases aren't nearly as dangerous. He writes, get vaxxed. I did. My wife did. My parents did. But public policy that now focuses on broad-scale masking and or lockdowns of those who are vaccinated or forcing small children to mask is simply a power grab at this point. It seems that the goal is zero COVID, but that's not going to happen, nor was it ever likely to happen. The most likely outcome was always that COVID would become seasonal and, we hoped, far less deadly than it was originally, which is what is happening thanks to vaccination. In other words, we've hit the goalposts. If you're not vaxxed and you get sick, that's on you. We can't do any more than that. Widespread restrictions of liberty on behalf of no goalposts are insulting and ridiculous. So that's Ben Shapiro's assessment, like 50,000-foot assessment, and I have to say I agree. We'll step aside. We'll come back. Juan Williams is here, our first guest of the show, next. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. GuyBensonShow.com 
Back here on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. Let's check in with Juan Williams, Fox News analyst, columnist for The Hill, author of What the Hell Do You Have to Lose, his most recent book of several. Juan, great to have you back. My pleasure. Good to be with you, Guy. Juan, were you at the Nationals game the other night when the shooting right outside the stadium delayed the game and really postponed it until the next day? Yeah, they suspended the play. I think it was around the sixth inning guy, but it was one of those incredibly unsettling experiences in life. Uh, you know, because you're at a baseball game. The game was not going well for the good guys, and that, in my case, that means the Nationals. And uh, I was, you know, just kind of sitting there. I'm not one who fusses around with cell phones and much conversation. I really like baseball. I watch it. I think about it. And uh, suddenly I found myself distracted because we've been on a losing streak and the like. And then I thought what I heard was thunder. And I said to my wife, hey, you hear that? And then I said, you know what, maybe they're having fireworks early. The fireworks from the 4th of July had been delayed at the stadium because of bad weather. Uh, over the 4th of July weekend. So I thought maybe there was somebody doing fireworks, starting fireworks early outside. And then I noticed that on the upper deck in over the third base side, uh, there were some people rushing to the top. And I said, that must be it. They're looking at fireworks that I can't see from my seat. Uh, but then I, my eye went back to the field, and there was nobody. The guy, it was like something out of Twilight Zone. There were no players, no umpires. There was nobody in the dugout. And then... I started to see like waves, you know, it's like if you're in a storm and the wind blows one way and there's a ripple, a rush of people one way, then a rush of people another way on the lower level. And I was like, what is going on? What are people doing? And people on my level, on the second level, then some of them started to rush towards the exits and look around. I was like, something is going on. And I said to my, but I don't, I'm not sure what it is. And then we heard one of the uh, ushers came and said, everyone come inside the stadium, please. And uh, we like said, okay. To the, I mean, to the we, concourse? It, yes. Well, in our level, it meant come inside onto the level, the second level, you know, inside the stadium, inside okay. the doors. Okay. On the concourse, would have been on the ground level. Um, so we came inside, and that's where I came face-to-face, Guy, with something that, as I said to you earlier, unsettled me, which is seeing panicked people, uh, seeing fear. And seeing people behave in an irrational manner, you know, all of a sudden there was a stampede in one direction. And I thought, oh, my God, if there's a child, an elderly person, and obviously you're, you're speaking to a relatively old dude, uh, I just thought, no, you know, some people are there on canes and wheelchairs. Someone's going to get hurt here. And uh, and then my wife, uh, she pointed towards the bathroom. I said, yeah, don't get in involved with that. Go ahead. And then she, she couldn't get in the bathroom. People had barricaded themselves in the bathroom. Uh, it was a moment of panic, pure and simple. And, and you know... Like, my, hang on, just, just to jump in. Here. So people had had barricaded themselves in the bathroom. Did they think there was an active shooter inside the stadium? That's where I was going with my logic or my lack of logic guy, which is that from what I understood from talking to the ushers and then Mike Rizzo, the general manager, stopped by to say something to me, uh, that there was a shooting outside. But then I thought maybe people think there was a shooting inside. But even so, I thought to myself, 
if there's someone shot somebody, you know, some lovers, something happened, maybe this wouldn't be, I think, among the fans. It would have been among, like, the stadium staff or something. Because you can't get in. You have to go through a magnetometer to get in any stadium these days. Um, but, no, what occurred to me then as I was standing there was that, you know, what people think there's a live shooter, someone like a sniper or somebody marching through the stadium with uh, high-caliber weaponry killing people. This did, hadn't occurred to me at first. I, 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 it just it didn't register. But that's why, like, in various areas, when I was watching those waves of panicked people, you could see some bending down by walls, some sticking their heads under seats, uh, people rushing over the... Uh, you know, over over onto the field and into the dugout area was to escape, to get out of a shooter's line of sight. And I, I, at first it didn't make sense to me. Only afterward did I think, oh, that's, what's, that's what set off this panic. They thought this was going to be another, like that situation in Las Vegas at the concert. Remember that? Mm, of course. Which is, I mean, still kind of unsolved. They never found out the motive, which is an incredibly creepy thing. But it turned out that those fears, fortunately, were unfounded. There, there was no gunman at the stadium. There was a shooting just outside the stadium, and three people were shot. Suspect is, last I checked, and I just checked a few minutes ago, still at large. There is a significant reward. I saw $10,000 for information leading to the apprehension of whoever this was. But, of course, it's a scary situation. That's got to feel surreal to just briefly look away from the field to figure out what's happening, then you look back and it's been evacuated. I mean, all the players are totally gone. Uh, you know, the, the umpire is totally gone. And trying to figure out in real time what's happening, I think that's probably what fed some of the panic. If they, if they brought the players off the field, then that probably, I can understand the decision. I'm not saying it was the wrong call, but it probably fueled some of the panic among the fans saying, if they feel like the players might be in danger from bullets, then we certainly might be in danger from bullets. And hence, some of that behavior that re- that you were just describing. Juan, the thing that's really sad, and a few Let me just pe- quickly add to, please. add to what you said there, Guy, was uh, something else that, was, that fits just with what you described is uh, seeing players walking on the second level in uniform, some of them in catcher's gear. I was told that Patrick Corbin, who was our starting pitcher for the Nationals that night, he was walking on the lower level, the concourse level, and they were looking for friends and family. So it's it's totally surreal, unnerving circumstance at a baseball game. Wow. So they were there was so much confusion about what had happened that players literally left the safety of the clubhouse to come looking for friends and family in the stands to make sure they were okay. That's what it seems to be. Wow. And in the newspaper I later read, I don't know this uh, except from the newspaper, that somebody said shooter, and I guess that some people interpreted that suggesting there was someone aiming into the stadium, you know, from afar or something like that. I don't know. But I just I got to tell you – doesn't didn't make sense to me, and the, the the level of fear and panic, it really was. You know, I didn't sleep well that night, and I thought to myself, you know, I, I I'm not comfortable in with so many guns. I'm just, it just makes me nuts. And it turned out that it was just unfortunately typical DC crime. Three people were shot, right, and 
it, no one inside the stadium was at risk. Of course, no. I guess people didn't know that at the time, but that, that's what the reality turned out to be. Juan, there have been 100 homicides in Washington, D.C. so far this year. We're a little over halfway through the calendar year. 100 homicides. It is out of control, not just in D.C., but a lot of other places and major cities. And, you know, I guess some partisans are going to disagree on what the real story is here and what the focus ought to be. But it's kind of undeniable that the violent crime wave in the United States it is real and not to be trifled with, and in fact needs to be aggressively confronted. Yeah, so I mean, you know, just to dive into what you just said, it's not all crime. In fact, all crime's pretty normal. The shootings in D.C. now are where they were at this time last year, but that still, that was a high point, and it looks yeah. like, in my opinion, we're going to go even higher. So, to me, what you're seeing is that there's a lot of shooting among you know, the, the drug people, the gang people, um, the criminal element in the society, it's not affecting most people. That's why it was so shocking uh, what happened at Nat Stadium, that it came that close to, you know, somehow coming across the fence from the world of gangland, gangland-type shootings. Um, but, and it's getting, have, I mean, it's, and it's obviously in this case here, extremely close to sort of a gentrified up-and-coming area of the city with a stadium with tens of thousands of people watching baseball. And it's yeah, not the first time. housing right across South Capitol Street. That's right. But, but it's also not the first time that really serious violence has ended up right at the doorstep of, of Nationals Park. There was, what was it, a few weeks ago, maybe months ago at this point, there was that carjacking, that horrible yes, right. carjacking with, with the young teenage girls who carjacked a, a, a gentleman, a grandfather, and ended up killing him. And, and that final episode, that it ended with him dying right outside Nationals Park. You've used the word a few times, Juan, unsettling. I mean, this is not just... Because I, I lived in Chicago for years, and they'd say, oh, there's all this violence, especially on weekends, especially in the summer, and it was almost always in a certain part of the city. And it's yeah. not to say it's not to say that none of that violence matters or none of those lives matter. Of no, course they I do. I'm not saying of, that at all. But, right, but, I, but, but people start to, people start to freak out when that violence starts to rear its head in more unexpected places, in places that have been, you know, see, seemingly or deemed safe for, in many cases, years. If that starts to deteriorate, you start to get more people tuning into the problem. I think that's a fair way of putting it. Yeah. I, at this point, I mean, how can you not tune into the problem? I mean, to my mind, you know, over the weekend guy, there was a six-year-old girl yes. who was shot to death outside a liquor store in Washington, D.C., again, in a bad section of town. Let's not, you know, let's not play games around us. Um, but it's a six-year-old. And, you know, it's just one of these things where if you have a heart, you think, what the hell? Why would somebody shoot? And it turns out it's another one of these drive-by situations, mm -hmm. much like what we saw outside the stadium. And so these are people who've got, I guess, when, in their lingo, some beef with each other over money, drugs, whatever. And, uh, and they've got guns, and they are using them willy-nilly. You know, the other day I wrote a column in The Hill. I said, you know, as a black male, 
it scares me because most of these shootings are of black males. I mean, it's 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 disproportionate to a wild degree. It's like you know, black male shooting other black males. It's it's incredible. Yeah, disproportionate. Huge. Barely covers it. Yeah, barely covers it. Right, and but but and it's not. To your point, if it's not relegated to certain areas, and if there are you know gang or turf wars or drug wars going on, and then other people are affected by it, then you start to see the pressure rising. On officials, and I think a lot of officials, you know, politicians, have had a number of things to say about the police for the last year plus, and a lot of them are trying to beat a hasty retreat on some of that rhetoric because we're seeing some of the results when criminals feel more emboldened, where they feel like they are more able to operate with it perhaps impunity or that the police aren't going to be as aggressive in their policing tactics. It's not acceptable. And Juan, to borrow your phrase about feeling unsettled, I just got back from New York City. The other night, I someone sent me uh, a text with a local news report about my neighborhood in Northern Virginia, which is considered to be an extremely safe place, a very, very low crime, especially violent crime. It's almost unheard of here. There was a shooting in my neighborhood, blocks away from where I live, and I texted Adam, my husband, I texted him, hey, did you see this story? It was around this time. He had not heard about it. We have a security system at our house with cameras, and when it's armed at night, it records things, and and you can go back to a certain timestamp and see if you can hear something. He pulled the 30 seconds of when these gunshots were fired. And I, I think we have the audio here. Max, if you just want to play, especially towards the end, those last three gunshots, listen, Juan. I mean, that was, that was at my house. That was our video system in a neighborhood just outside of Washington, D.C., and well, that sounded like outside the stadium Saturday night. That, that I'm, that's as you were describing it, and that's that unsettled feeling. I wasn't even home, but you know, it. I had a visceral response to it, and I can tell you, in some of the neighborhood chats, people are starting to get very worried about what's happening in D.C. Could this, you know, start to bleed into other areas if it's not brought under control? I mean, this we don't have to, and we're not. We're obviously not having a political argument about this. There is a political argument to be had, but I think the purpose of this conversation that we're having, each of us on a very personal level based on things that we have just experienced, either in person or in our neighborhoods, we can't look away from the problem. We shouldn't look away from the problem even when it's over there in a place that doesn't really affect your day-to-day life. But it really becomes impossible on sort of out of human nature on that level to look away from the problem when the problem shows up at your ballpark or in your neighborhood. Yeah, I don't, you know, as I said to you as a black man, I can't look away from it and uh cuz I I see exactly who the victims are, also who the perpetrators are, are black men. And so, but let me just add that to underscore something you said, it's not just the ballpark. You know, it's the retail communities, the people at the corner store, the restaurants. It's the people who are having to come to work in the downtown area. 
uh, if you if those people begin to feel anxious about being at work, walking down to get some lunch or a coffee shop or whatever, or going into the store, uh, that's that's tremendously damaging to an entire community. I don't care who you are. Um, but to my point, from my perspective, we have refused to deal with this issue. We're so politically polarized, you know, we don't wake up to it. You know, but to me, when I heard that sound on your uh, security system, and it it, it was chilling because it reminded me of what I heard Saturday night. You know, your brain doesn't want to admit what it's hearing, but that was yeah. the same doggone sound. That's what it was. Uh, it's, it's, it's terrible, man. We can't live. How can we live like this? Juan, we've got to leave it there. I'm glad you're safe, and most people at that ballpark, everyone was safe, but the, the crime is, is a real issue. And solutions, different question. We may agree or disagree, but it's always good having these types of conversations. We always enjoy chatting with you, and today, no exception, even though it wasn't necessarily a happy-go-lucky conversation. Juan Williams, Fox News analyst here on The Guy Benson Show. Juan, thank you. Thank you, Guy. Be safe. Likewise. And we'll step aside and be right back. Energetic, informed, fast-paced. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, I saw this headline from foxnews.com. Top Tokyo Olympics organizer doesn't rule out last-second Olympics cancellation. So there have been a few positive cases among athletes. We already know that there will be no fans in attendance for the most part. It will be a radically different Olympics experience because of coronavirus. Japan's had a real struggle with vaccinations. But the fact that a top organizer wouldn't rule out canceling the thing, it's supposed to start on Friday. That is wild. I hope it happens. Give these athletes a shot. That's my take. A shot at competing, not just the vaccine. Next hour, coming up with a doctor, Dr. Siegel, next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. Middle hour on the Guy Benson Show. You are listening live. I'm in Washington, D.C. Wherever you're listening, thank you for doing so. And if you're listening not live between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time, the podcast is a great option as well at GuyBensonShow.com. So hello to our podcast listeners, and there are many of you. That's a growing number. Appreciate that. Fox News alert as we get going here in our middle hour. The Dow ends up 549 points for the day. Closing at 34,511, as I mentioned in the last hour, erasing a lot of the losses and recovering from yesterday. Not fully, also off-session highs, but still obviously a strong day for the markets in New York. 
Let's get right to it with Fox News medical correspondent Dr. Mark Siegel. He's author of the book COVID, The Politics of Fear and the Power of Science, at D-R-M-A-R-C-S-I-E-G-E-L, Dr. Mark Siegel on Twitter. Doctor, great to have you back. Guy, always great to be on with you. Thank you for having me. So I just want to mention this briefly. We don't have to dwell on it, but on social media today, a lot of people have been sharing, for example, a short clip from last night's show of Sean Hannity encouraging people, urging people to take COVID seriously and saying that he believes in the science of vaccinations. And a lot of people who are just constantly looking for reasons to criticize our network, Fox News, are saying, oh, Fox is suddenly, there's a memo that went out. It must be the case. Fox is suddenly pro-vaccine out of nowhere. And it, it shouldn't annoy me because a lot of these people are just being obnoxious trolls and haters, but there are also, you know, verified blue check mark, media critic type people who seem to be buying into this. And what bothers me about it, Doctor, is how many times have we had you on this show for months and Dr. Sapphire and Dr. Neshwat and Dr. Manny? We have had you on this show, you guys collectively, at least once a week for months and i'm not alone you guys have been all over fox news channel fox business programming all the fox platforms as far back as the vaccine existed we were promoting the vaccine back when it was still the trial results were starting to get published and i you can speak personally to what a lie it is that our network has been, you know, anti-vaccine or whatever. There haven't been pro-vaccine voices. Our entire, our whole crew of experts, medical experts and doctors, have been extremely, consistently, respectfully pro-vaccine since late 2020. And it's just, it's a pet peeve that I'm venting to you about (laughs) to start the interview. But I just wanted to put it out there for the record. And I know that you can back me up on this because you've been one of those doctors making this case over and over again on the biggest platforms our network has to offer. Well, I want to give you a long answer to that, if you don't mind. First of all, I know Sean Hannity well, and he's a guy who actually pays a lot of attention to medical issues and concerns. He's given me many phone calls over the years about that. He's punctilious. Number two, a number, many, many, many of our anchors and people at Fox News have called me for my advice on this, and a vast majority have taken the vaccine and have talked about it on the air. Number three, I've been studying vaccines for 20 years now. I've written books on flu vaccines, on vaccine hesitancy, on the issue of the swine flu fiasco in 1976, how we had a vaccine against a virus that didn't exist. This vaccine I heard about over a year ago. I was one of the first people to talk to the NIH about it before it even came out. I thought it was never going to be this effective when it came out and it was this effective and, and this safe. I was all over it. I talked to the people on the FDA advisory committee. I know all of these people for many, many years. In December, I took the vaccine on the air. I showed it arriving to NYU Langone Health and, and did it as I did lives, what we call lives in the business guy. I did lives of the vaccine arriving for the first time full of excitement. I interviewed the first person to take the vaccine on the air on Fox News. And you know what's really interesting? Fox News. And, and you know, the, the, the media has, has no problem attacking me for other things, right? No problem. 
at the least thing, but, but you're not going to find anybody acknowledging that I'm one of the most pro-vaccine people you're ever going to meet, that I'm an enormous fan of this vaccine, that I'm advocating it for everyone the age 12 and up. I have no hesitation giving it to young teens, by the way. I've given it to my son at the age of 16. I absolutely think it's a wall of protection, and I've said it multiple, multiple times on the air. Yep, and the data bears it out, and you're not alone. We have this rotation here on this show, Dr. Sapphire. I, I went through the list. The whole Fox medical team, you guys have been terrific. You've been thorough. You've come on and dealt with every question, every question I've thrown your direction for months in a very patient way to explain to a layperson like me and to our whole audience, okay, what does this mean? What about this concern? And it's not just this show. It is all over the Fox properties. And for some reason, people who have an agenda and who want to tell a story about Fox that isn't true, they just want to make that all go away and and force feed a narrative to other people to make it seem like Fox has done something that we haven't. And I guess... Obviously, maybe you can tell in my voice, like I take it a little bit personally. You must take it even more personally based on everything you just no, said. No, it's I, no, just no, a I, lie. I don't, I don't take it personally because, because my, I'm, I've been unwavering. It just it so happens that this vaccine came out as something that I can't believe how great it is. And let me explain that a little further. Most of our vaccines through history that have been this effective have been what's called live virus vaccines. Well, guess what? Even if you weaken a virus, it's still a virus, and it causes all kinds of side effects. So I knew when this virus simply engineered a protein, caused a protein to make, to make an immune response, that it was going to be safer than almost any vaccine we had other than a sore arm or two. But I knew that you had to take two doses, and that's proving to be true with the Delta variant. I knew that was going to be the case. I knew, I understood. You know, we were ahead of the science in many ways. We said, look, we said, look. You know, you need this vaccine to protect other people, not just yourself. And that's something that some of the main public health officials were very reluctant to say at the beginning. And we weren't. We were in front of this vaccine with great excitement. So, yeah, I mean, we can't account for everything that's said on the air, but the vast majority of us. And as you said, the doctors on the network all have been incredibly pro-vaccine. We believe in natural immunity, too, but we believe that everybody should be vaccinated, and we believe that the vaccine is the ticket out of the pandemic. How many times have I said that on the air? Many, many times. We have just a little bit of time left in this segment, Doctor, so let me ask you, you mentioned Delta, and right now I feel like I'm at a sorority party. Whenever I go anywhere, it's just Delta, Delta, Delta. That's a bad joke, but people are talking about this variant constantly, and it seems like it's tipping into freakout for some people. 30 seconds, Doctor, how concerned should we, be, should we be about the Delta variant? The answer is that the Delta variant is only more transmissible. It's not more severe at all. And, and all of the deaths and almost all of the hospitalization have been on unvaccinated people. So we just spent the first part of the interview explaining why you should get vaccinated. The second part is the Delta variant's not going to bother you. Even if you've got a very mild case, as we're seeing with the Texas lawmakers, right. you know, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're clung, clinging together with another person that has it, you might get it. You're going to get a mild case. The Delta variant can be dealt with with the vaccine. Amen. Appreciate it, Dr. Mark Siegel. Thank you for succinctly explaining that point and also letting me blow off some steam on the latter point. We always appreciate you being here. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk again soon. My pleasure. Thanks, Guy. Dr. Mark Siegel on The Guy Benson Show on Fox News Radio. We'll be right back. 
fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Thank you for listening. This story from the Washington Post really upset me. My mother texted it to our family group chat. And as I read on into the story, I felt myself getting angrier and angrier on behalf of this young woman. Here is the headline from Washington Post. This deaf, blind Paralympian was told to navigate Tokyo alone. So she quit Team USA. The dateline is in Maryland. Five years ago, Becca Myers was on the floor of her room in the Olympic Village at the 2016 Rio de Janeiro Paralympics. Balled up and sobbing, frustrated and terrified. She had stopped eating because she couldn't find the athlete's dining area. Even after parents rescued her and pumped her full of calories and confidence in time for her to win three gold medals and a silver for Team USA, she made a promise to herself. She would never put herself through such a nightmare again. On Sunday evening, roughly five weeks before the start of the Tokyo Paralympics, Myers, a deaf-blind swimmer with a chance to medal in four events, pulled the plug on her Olympic dream, most likely forever. With a click, she sent an email informing U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee officials of her decision to withdraw from Team USA. Quote, I would love to go to Tokyo, Myers, 26, said in the living room of her parents' home in the Baltimore suburbs. Tokyo would have been her third Paralympic Games. Her first was London, 2012, when she was 17. Quote, swimming has given me my identity as a person. I've always been Becca, the swimmer girl. I haven't taken this lightly. This has been very difficult for me. But I need to say something to affect change because this can't go on any longer. Born with Usher syndrome, a rare genetic disorder that left her deaf from birth and that progressively has robbed her of her sight, she requires a personal care assistant, a PCA, to function as an athlete and as a member of society. Since 2017, in the aftermath of Rio, Myers has had an understanding with the U.S. Paralympic Committee that permits her mother, Maria, to travel with her to international competitions as her PCA. The results have been spectacular. In 2018, she won five gold medals at the Pan Pacific Para Swimming Championships in Australia. In 2019, she won four medals and set two world records, the eighth and ninth of her career, at the World Para Swimming Championships in London. For the Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics, however, Myers' needs have collided with the drastic restrictions resulting from the coronavirus pandemic. And you knew this was coming, didn't you? Here we have this incredibly talented American athlete who has won multiple Olympic golds, set world records at other global competitions. She, of course, qualified for her third Paralympic Games for 2020. Now it's of course, been pushed into 2021 in Tokyo, but there are very dramatic restrictions because of COVID. And you guessed it, there are no exceptions, no matter how insane 
the lack of exceptions might be. Back to the Washington Post story. Competitions are being held almost entirely without spectators, and significant limitations on foreign delegations mean personal care assistants, including Maria Myers, her mother, will not be permitted into Japan for the Paralympic Games. For Becca Myers, that meant she wasn't going to Japan either. Quote, she's given her entire life for this. It's unacceptable. It's heartbreaking, Maria Myers said. She is terrified to go alone, and I mean terrified. I haven't been sleeping. I'm so stressed, Becca Myers said. My training started to suffer because of this situation, and I just haven't been able to be the best I can be. I know I can be the best with the resources I need. It's worked for the last four years. So then the story gets into this question, whose call is this? The question of who is responsible for the policy is where the story gets complicated, the Post reports. In explaining the situation to Myers and her family, the U.S. OPC has cited restrictions imposed on foreign visitors and delegations by the Japanese government and the Tokyo 2020 Organizing Committee. Quote, there remain no exceptions to late additions to our delegation other than the athletes and essential operational personnel per the organizing committee and the government of Japan. This is according to the USOPC. And they relayed this to Mark Myers, Becca's father, in an email at the end of June. Quote, as I said to you, this is one of the officials, as I said to you both on the phone and over email, I fully empathize with your concerns and wish we could find a way as we have in the past. However, the Myerses, having worked their connections in the U.S. government and in the movement, have reached a different conclusion. So they've tried everything. Becca Meyer says, no one has ever asked me what I need. No one ever asked me that question. When we had a meeting in May to discuss this, I presented my case, and I said, okay, how do we make this work? They talked right over me. They dismissed me. They said, this is what we have. You're going to have to deal with it. In a statement provided to the Post, the U.S. OPC responded, we are dealing with unprecedented restrictions around what is possible on the ground in Tokyo. As it's been widely reported, at the direction of the government of Japan, it's just not permitted for any personnel other than operational essential staff with roles related to the overall execution of the games to enter the country. So there's sort of some finger-pointing going on here, back and forth, about who's ultimately making this decision. But the result seems to be, at this point, final. You have one of our finest athletes for the Paralympic Games who can't go because her caregiver, as a blind and deaf person, isn't allowed to travel due to COVID restrictions. And I guess vaccination, none of that stuff matters. This is just uh, the rule. And I would say probably there's some blame to go around. I understand that you have to make rules, but when you're dealing with Paralympic Games in particular, there has to be some flexibility on a case-by-case basis. And I understand that that gets complicated, but maybe you shouldn't host the Paralympic Games if you're not willing to make some adjustments for people who have 
certain disabilities or special needs. And the fact that the U.S. team apparently didn't really anticipate this and blew right past some of the concerns that were raised months ago, that's not a good look either. I understand that we're in an unusual and unprecedented time, but I'm just so upset for this girl and her family. Really, this woman, I should say, and her family. She's elite. Imagine being this good. Imagine winning this many golds without eyesight or the ability to hear. It's like, you know, Helen Keller, what she had to go through. Imagine going through your life either deaf or blind. That is really hard. Then imagine having both of those conditions. And yet, figuring out a way to become an elite athlete, qualifying for these Olympics, and because of some of these restrictions that bureaucrats are unwilling to tweak at all, it's like you've got to go and show up unable to see or hear and do it all on your own, which is impossible, or not compete. And she's decided, well, I have no choice. I'm off of Team USA. Unacceptable. She may not win the gold, but whoever does, in my mind, will have an asterisk because I believe like this woman deserves her. This woman has her shot. She's in probably the back end of the peak of her athletic career, and it's just such a shame that this happened. There's still time. Maybe they'll work something out. I hope they do. It's the Guy Benson Show. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. The Guy Benson Show. Back here on The Guy Benson Show from Washington, D.C. Glad to have you with us. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. The podcast is always free. Joining me now is Katie Pavlich, editor at a website called townhall.com, with which I am familiar. Also a Fox News contributor and a good friend. Katie, great to have you back. Hey, Guy. Great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Before we get into politics, I just want to say you and your husband threw a very fun birthday barbecue just a couple weeks ago, (laughs) and we had such a great time. We brought our dog, and he and Gadsden ran around your yard, and you guys had an incredible spread, and what a fun group of people. So thanks for including us, and... It was super fun and happy birthday belated on the air. Thank you so much. We had uh, many, many leftovers, and it was a wonderful night full of friendship and laughs. So we were very grateful that everybody was able to come and celebrate. At one point, I was like looking around, kind of counting the number of people in my head, and then looking at the amount of food that just kept. And coming and coming off the grill. Our and it's fear is running out of food. Well, so that did not happen. But. At one point, I looked at your husband. I was just like, are you sure you have enough food? And he looked at me for a second like I was serious. I was like, no, I'm obviously, obviously joking. joking. This is a huge amount of food. <laughs> On a less lighthearted note, did you see the story that two nights ago, right down literally the road from both of us, there was some sort of a shooting, and there are people in our neck of the woods who are now worried that D.C. crime, which we know keeps getting worse, might be bleeding into northern Virginia. Our security system, and I think you have the same one, that the cameras outside, it picked up the gunshots. You could hear them clearly, five of them, like one in the morning. Yeah, and I played the sound of it earlier for Juan in our first hour. And, I mean, our neighborhood is not used to that sort of thing, but if it's getting really out of control across the river... I mean, this, it, it's not necessarily surprising yeah. that perhaps a criminal element 
is going to start expanding. I mean, it's actually kind of scary. Yeah, no. Uh, as we know, crime in D.C. is absolutely out of control. There was that shooting outside of Nats Park uh, over the weekend, and you have the mayor now saying that they're going to use resources in D.C. to pay for more overtime for police, and that's great. But if you're not, if you don't have prosecutors who are willing to put people uh, behind bars who are committing these crimes, and they end up getting released and committing even more crimes, and they just are kind of on this roster of people the police continually arrest. Um, you definitely don't solve any of the problems. And I, I think, yes, absolutely, you're seeing that kind of get pushed over into Northern Virginia. And it used to be that criminals were very uh, scared of coming into Virginia because the laws yep. and the prosecution process was much more stringent. But I do know that we have, uh, I believe, a uh, there's a prosecutor now in Arlington who is part of this you know new ideology of uh, you know no bail and allowing people to, to get out of uh, jail early, even if they've committed very violent crimes. Uh, not following through with prosecutions, and we know that's a recipe for uh, disaster. We've seen it all around the country. So, you know, there are consequences for allowing criminals to run free and essentially yep. legalizing crime. Uh, and a shooting is, you know, I know there's been a spate of uh, car break-ins in Northern Virginia, but a shooting is obviously much more serious. So, well, so actually, we they can get it under control. Neighbors right down the street on our block had both of their cars stolen within the span of about 15 minutes a few weeks ago. They got both of their wow. cars. Now, the police were able to recover the cars eventually uh, a few days later. But, I mean, that was, you know, crack of dawn. Clearly, criminals are emboldened, right? They just, mm -hmm. in, in the middle of, it's not quite the burbs, but it's an area that has long been considered very, very safe. There was the Grand Theft Auto twice over, just literally houses away, and then a few blocks away. I mean, to hear five gunshots on your home security system is pretty shocking, especially when you've chosen a neighborhood for safety. And to your point, like for yeah. a long time, there's been crime in D.C., right? That's been a very serious problem. I know it's especially serious now, 100 homicides already this year in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. alone. But the Potomac River is not magic, right? It's not a moat. You can get across it multiple ways. Criminals in the past didn't want to for the reasons that you explained, but if right. they get a sense like, hey, there's new territory, new riches to be found, more chaos to create, and the old disincentives are perhaps melting away, criminals adjust, right? And, and it's just, I think, a microcosm of a broader conversation being had across the country about crime in not just urban areas, mm -hmm. but other areas as well. And you mentioned Washington, D.C. and the government, and now Mayor Bowser saying, oh, we're going to put more resources into police and overtime. That's fine. But I remember last summer where there were anti-police protests that turned mm -hmm. violent and into riots in Washington, D.C. And, of course, I was totally yeah. fine with peaceful Black Lives Matter protests. That is completely fine. That is great. But... It crossed a line many, many times where it turned into riots, and they were torching places and trying to burn down that church, of course. We remember that whole mm -hmm. episode. And at one point, the way that the city sort of tried to get a handle on it was they allowed activists to paint in huge letters, Black Lives Matter, <laughs> down the middle of the street, like an entire street. And I believe it's now been renamed. And they had for a while, at the end of Black Lives Matter, they had added defund the police on the street, right. and that stayed for a while. And I don't know if you saw the story. One of our colleagues, Spencer Brown at townhall.com, had it today. Some people went out and stenciled in large, similar font outside the Cuban embassy, Cuba Libre, to sort mm. of support I'm their... I'm sure they got rid of it very quickly. 
instantly. No, no, the city mobilized mm-hmm. promptly to power wash that away. And I just find it interesting about what social justice messages the city of Washington, D.C. will endorse and what is deemed to be inappropriate graffiti. I, it, it's not hard to pick up a slight double standard. Well, first of all, um, the BLM plaza and the large Black Lives Matter, you know, bright yellow uh, stencil on the road right in front of the White House and next to uh, the Hay Adams, uh, that's actually going to be permanent. They're working on the permanent Black Lives Matter plaza, and that is going to stay. So uh, there's a huge double standard in terms of what is allowed and what isn't allowed endorsed by the city. Also, you had over the weekend when that shooting happened outside of Nass Park, the D.C. police union slamming the city and saying, just like all of the police unions around the country have been saying, that uh, the crime is running rampant because the police are not allowed to do their jobs. And there are politicians and city councils around the country who have advocated to defund the police, and there are real victims uh, as a result of those policies. A six-year-old girl was also shot last weekend. You know, a lot of the D.C. uh, folks who go to the Nats games who maybe don't live in D.C. were horrified about the shooting, as they should be, but what they... Maybe aren't so, you know, maybe what they don't recognize is that that happens in neighborhoods in D.C. Uh, almost every night at this point, especially now that it's, it's summertime and there's an uptick in crime. And so, you know, it's just this disconnect between real consequences and not just accountability for criminals, but accountability for the politicians who make these decisions to appease these very fanatic anti-police uh, movements uh, with no caving to stripping the budgets, tying the hands of police officers, not you know, prosecutors not going after these guys and keeping them in prison. Uh, where's the responsibility for the decision makers on that? Because uh, there really hasn't been any. Meanwhile, speaking of the enforcement of laws, let's talk about the border crisis. The June numbers came out. We've touched on it a few times here on the show, but I think it has to be repeated over and over again because it seems like our political class and even the pundit class we're very easily distracted, right? And we just sort of like yeah. jump onto each new story as it arises. This is an ongoing crisis. We have a White House that tells us it's not a crisis, a White House that tells us the border is secure and the border is closed. And in the month of June, there were 189,000 detentions, arrests at the southern border of mm-hmm. illegal immigrants. There were tens of thousands of gotaways. I was on TV last night, I was hosting for Kennedy, and Marie Harf. My former co-host tried to make the point that, well, the fact that there were 189,000 arrests means that the border isn't open and the border isn't secure. It's like, well, there's actually tens of thousands of other people who got away. So there's that piece of it as well. And the other element that I want to just circle for a moment, the White House and the administration, their talking point is root causes. That's why they sent Kamala Harris down to Guatemala. Mm -hmm. They want to sort of pretend like there's just some bad situations on the ground in a handful of countries, and if we can work our magic in those countries with foreign aid and diplomacy, then we will shut off the spigot. Almost 50,000 of the June arrests came among illegal immigrants from countries other than those four countries. I mean, that number was seven or 8,000 at the end of the Trump administration. Now it's close to 50,000. That Mm -hmm. is not the root cause issue here, Katie, is it? No, no. The root cause of this crisis sits in the White House. The root cause is repealing common sense 
anti-illegal immigration measures that President Trump happened to put into place. But because he did it, they had to repeal them, and now they have a disaster on their hands. It's not only a humanitarian problem, but it's also a national security problem. And these cartels will charge more and make more money from people who are coming from countries of interest, meaning failed states or uh, countries the United States has put on, like a terror watch list, for example. And so you see people from Ghana. You're not talking about people even in the northern hemisphere or South America. We're talking about people going Yemen. all the way the from Yemen Africa, story. from Yemen. Right. And Ro- so, Romania. There was a um, huge number from Romania I saw as well. I mean, that is all part of the puzzle. We've talked about this as well. When you have all these kids or families getting detained, that chews up so much time, so many resources from Border Patrol, that makes it much easier for the people who want to get away to get away among those tens of thousands that aren't in that official number. But we know through various detection that they were seen crossing, just there was no one to go get them or to stop them. And then we saw this exclusive report today from Griff Jenkins, Katie, our colleague at Fox News. He was able to confirm that at one of the most active sectors at the border, where there's been a huge amount of uh, illegal border crossing, COVID cases confirmed Mm -hmm. among illegal immigrants getting detained are up 900%, 900%. And I know currently, we talked about this yesterday, the Biden administration is under pressure from the left, New York Times had a story about this, to lift yet another Trump-era policy where they were at least holding down the incentive for families to come to the United States illegally under a COVID-related rule, an emergency right. rule. The left is saying, nope, yep, COVID's over. Let them all in now. We need to lift that. It's cruel. It's unusual. This new statistic from Griff, I think, certainly complicates that argument. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's so many factors here. There's, you're, you're mentioning how the system gets so tied up with uh, the children and the, the mothers who are coming over with their children. The court system also gets tied up. So the backlog of these so-called asylum cases is already years long. And now we have what, a million more people they've just let into the country already this year. Um, and not to mention the gotaways who those are people who think that, you know, they don't, You can turn yourself in and still stay in a lot of situations. And so there's a big question about why you wouldn't just do that and why you would want to evade capture. And that's a serious national security and uh, criminal concern that people have had and been screaming about that the White House doesn't seem to be interested in. But it's just the disconnect of the COVID issue, which has been going on for months. We have this new Delta variant that the White House claims they're very concerned about, but they don't. They will not tie that directly to any kind of issue when it comes to illegal immigration or people not being properly tested or quarantined when they come to the country. And then there's, of course, the whole issue of the Canadian border is closed. The Mexican border on the ports of entry is closed to regular traffic. And yet they still have thousands of people a day flowing into the country untested and unquarantined. Mm-hmm. And yet they want Americans now to make more sacrifices and go back to, you know, masking or and back to limited contact. And people are afraid that their businesses are going to get shut down again. And there isn't a peep about the fact that maybe some of this Delta variant stuff is coming as a result of people crossing the border, getting on taxpayer funded buses and planes and sent wherever they want around the country by the Biden administration. And nobody's yeah, the, really talking about that. The incentives seem pretty wild. And I saw yesterday, we mentioned this in one of our monologues, Washington Post story over the weekend, that the president himself apparently is concerned about how this is playing politically, how it's a gift to the Republicans and the immigration issue could be potent for the GOP in 2022. And a point that I made on TV last night was like, 
sir, you are not a bystander. You are not a pundit who's analyzing what's happening <laughs> here. And you're, and you're right. This is bad politics for your side because you're responsible. If you think that there's a political problem, you can maybe deal with the policy problem over which you actually have more control than any other human being in the country. That's just my perhaps naive take, you know, since you're president of the United States, but I guess he's worried about how it plays, but he is squeezed from his left wing, which wants even more illegal immigration, and then average voters who hate what they're seeing, and it's one of his worst issues, and it seems like they're basically paralyzed, and they just have to tell us obvious lies, like, oh yeah, the border's secure. No one believes that, but they say it over and over again, even as the data continues to roll in. The seasonal surge was supposed to be over. It's getting hotter and hotter, and the numbers keep going up. Katie Pavlich, editor of townhall.com, Fox News contributor. Great to have you here, Katie. We are up on the break, but let's do it again soon. Sounds good. Thank you, Guy. Have a good one. Talk to you soon. You bet. It's the Guy Benson Show, back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. Well, we had a lengthy segment. Actually, it was a series of segments on Friday's show. And we have an update on one of those stories, and it is, in fact, a Woke Tales story. Woke Tales! Woo! So Ben & Jerry's, the ice cream company run by those crunchy socialists in Vermont, they had been curiously silent on social media for weeks. They had tweeted, I guess, about some new mint flavor, and then they were flooded with angry responses. It was a clear activist plan. Right? This was a strategy, this was a move that people got together and coordinated to attack Ben and Jerry's and to demand justice for Palestinians. So this is the pro-Palestinian slash Hamas apology crowd. They're very angry that Ben and Jerry's, I guess, distributes their products, their delicious ice cream products, inside the Palestinian territories, including at Israeli settlements. And they feel like this is an affront to their twisted, frankly, sense of justice. So they were very mad. And Ben and Jerry's social media footprint just kind of went quiet, which is rare for them. They're very active and activist and very left wing. And I find it obnoxious, but I like their product and I try to separate these things. Well, this got some attention and people were like well what is it what is this silence about and of course silence is violence and complicity and i mean the whole thing is exhausting ben and jerry's i guess feeling the heat under pressure from activists and then the media covering it they announced that they will end their sales of ice cream in quote occupied palestinian territory because it does not align with their values they're also changing their distributor in israel So I think the occupied territories is a very loaded left-wing term. I'm not surprised that they would use it, but it is par for the course and pretty disgusting. And yet they are still going to sell their ice cream in Israel, which I'm, of course, fine with. They're just going to deprive their product in the Palestinian territory. So I guess, sorry, Palestinians, but they're sticking it to Israel for justice and peace or something. It's a completely incoherent response, actually, that seems to be making nobody happy. Because they're like, okay, fine, 
in solidarity with our values, we're not going to sell our ice cream to the Palestinians. What? But guess what? When you base your ice cream company on politics and everything's political in your little ice cream world, you are going to end up doing absurd, ridiculous, embarrassing things. And Ben and Jerry's has gotten all twisted up. So enjoy that. And of course, the mob is not placated. So enjoy that too, Ben and Jerry's. You signed up for this. In fact, this is your mob, guys. Congrats. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy Hour is underway here on this Tuesday on The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. Thank you for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm headed after the show to Indiana. All of a sudden, travel is very much back in my schedule. So it's a lot, but we've got you covered here, and we always are glad that you're listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every single day. GuyBensonShow.com, and the hour, this happy hour, is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is fantastic. I strongly recommend it. I'm a fan. I'm a consumer. Even if they didn't sponsor the show, I'm a consumer. It's TheLongDrink.com. It is a really refreshing citrus soda with a kick of premium liquor. 21 plus only, of course. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. You can see where it's sold near you. They are expanding by popular demand, or you can also order online, which is what we do. With that, let's get to our first guest of the final hour, Howie Kurtz, host of Fox News Channel's Media Buzz, every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. You can also check out his podcast, Media Buzz Meter, on Twitter. He's at Howard Kurtz. He was my guest when I was filling in last night for Kennedy on TV, and we are reunited. Howie, great to have you back, this time on radio. We meet again. Hi, guys. <laughs> yes, and we actually are going to talk about a few similar things, but since we chatted last evening about the runaway Texas Democrat story and this little mini super spreader event that they apparently caused with their maskless flights to D.C., there are a few updates. A sixth Democrat from that contingent has now tested positive for COVID. Again, the good news is these are all extremely mild symptoms or no symptoms at all. A lot of them didn't even know that they were positive, which shows that the vaccines work. However, these are positive tests. There's apparently someone at the White House who's tested positive, an aide to Nancy Pelosi, people who are at various events with these Texas Democrats popping up with positive tests. And you were making the point yesterday, Howie, that because what the Democrats are doing in this sort of, my view, political stunt that ultimately won't work, because the media by and large is on board, and they like this, and they are sort of like a cause celeb among many in the D.C. press, 
it seems like some of the coverage of the COVID angle, which is not great PR, let's put it that way, and the optics and the photos on the plane, that's gotten sort of glanced over, glossed over a little bit because it doesn't really help the narrative that the Democrats and a lot of journalists want to be pushing on this story. Right. It's a little sidebar, nothing to see here. Gee, it's unfortunate, and that sort of thing. And it really does show you how totally in the tank the press is for these fugitive Texas Democrats who, uh, you know, it's been covered as if uh, they are engaging in this incredible act of courage. And one of them is a woman who had to postpone her wedding. And they really, what they just did is they got on a plane without masks, and they came to D.C., they held a press, bunch of press conferences, hasn't really accomplished anything. And if this had been Republican lawmakers leaving, let's say, New York, to block a liberal voting rights bill, uh, the coverage would have been so much more hostile, calling them obstructionists and worse. And then when the COVID angle uh, developed, and I certainly am not happy that they got COVID. I don't wish anybody uh, get to get COVID. Um, it would have been, see, it's, it would almost have verged on it serves them right mm-hmm. because they were so irresponsible and did this so quickly. And why weren't they wearing masks and all of that? Right. They're anti-democracy and anti-science. They're obstructionists and reckless. I mean, they would have a field day. They would be actually, many in the press, delighted by the story. And yet, they're on board with this. And by the way, you, you mentioned that you know one of the lawmakers, oh, she had to postpone her wedding. I do not feel one ounce of sympathy about that whatsoever. She made a decision. She made a choice yeah. uh-huh. to go along with, frankly, a lie. Like, if you were against the bill, fine. But the way they're positioning it is like it is the end of democracy in Texas, which is the only way you can really justify this type of very dramatic stunt to completely leave the state to deny quorum. And eventually it's going to fail because they're going to come back and get to change this river. Right. Right. Exactly. But you made a decision that you are not going to attend your own scheduled wedding to be a part of this ridiculous lie, frankly. And I guess if you're that committed to it, maybe she believes it, but if she's that committed to politics, uh, I guess I wonder how her fiancé feels about this. Like, okay, maybe more committed to the politics uh, than other things. Anyway, we can move on from that, but, Howie, on this overall point and the tone of the way that the press has gone along with it. It actually reminded me of a quote, and I'm not sure if you saw this quote, but there's a journalist named Julia Yaffe, and she's worked a number of different places. I think she's like more and more sort of just letting her liberal flag fly and just out there being a partisan. But she, on her substack, quoted what she described as a prominent journalist in Washington, D.C., talking about covering Washington, D.C. So this is Julia Yaffe with an unnamed prominent D.C. journalist. And I've read this quote before on the air, but I'm not sure if you've seen it. Either way, I'd love to get your reaction. Here's what this reporter, this other journalist, said on background. So we don't have the name. I would love to know who this is. Quote, Democrats in general have a much thinner skin. This is not unique to Trump, but Republicans never expect a fair shake. So if you cover them fairly, you can have a good working relationship with them. Democrats, and this is the the poll quote for me, Democrats de facto expect you to be on their side and are horrified when you hold them to account as you would any other administration. And then this person goes on to describe the way that the Obama White House staff would go ballistic on reporters when any of the coverage was negative. And the underlying anger is not, hey, you're giving us bad coverage. The the twist of the knife is 
how can you be doing this to us? We're on the same side. This is a journalist, a prominent journalist in D.C. saying Democrats de facto expect journalists to be on their side. I find that refreshingly candid. I think it's honest. I think it is what you and I have talked about many times, Howie. But for them to say it in a quote that's now in print, mm-hmm. it's, I think, meant to be a reflection on Democrats and their thin skin and their sense of arrogance and entitlement when it comes to the press. But I, I almost feel like it gets it backwards because Democrats, again, this is my opinion, the expectation, the anticipation that reporters will be on their side is in fact a well and richly earned expectation. I think it actually is a bad reflection on both Democrats and the media because Democrats wouldn't have this notion if it were not rooted in significant truth. I actually agree with the unnamed journalist and have made that observation myself because um, there is this, I mean, you kind of nailed it. There is this assumption by liberals and Democrats that the press is left-leaning, and so they probably uh, probably agree with what we're doing. And so if they challenge us, then they're undermining the progress that we could make for America and build back better and all of that. And you <laughs> right. see it with the Biden White House. I mean, by and large, I don't think this is a disputable fact. President Biden has gotten far more sympathetic coverage. I'm not just of course. About what, what flavor ice cream are you eating? Than, than, than Donald Trump did. And yet, how many times now, is at least three prominent instances, has he snapped at reporters for asking perfectly legitimate questions about well, why are you so confident that Putin's going to change his behavior or that you have the votes to get an infrastructure deal, which still looks like it's not going to happen. And he kind of takes umbrage at it. It's like, why well, are you challenging me? You don't believe what I'm saying? Or you're asking me to guarantee something that I can't guarantee? Just parry it. Just make a joke. I mean, it surprises me that... that Biden feels the need to push back when the questions are basically legitimate process questions and not the kinds of hostile questions that Donald Trump got virtually every day. And when they do get hostile questions, it's from a farther left perspective. Like the the most I I think back actually pretty frequently to that first press conference to take, you know, remember, it took forever for him to hold a first official press conference and he finally did it. And so everyone's like, okay, here we go. We watched. (laughs) And the only questions that seemed pointed were from almost the perspective of lefty activists. And we talked about it here on the show, being like, why aren't you going further to do what progressives want? That, that was sort of like the really challenging stuff. So I think that this is illustrative of something that a lot of Americans and certainly conservatives understand. I think that the bristling from Democrats, if they do get tough coverage sometimes, is because it's this sense of like friendly fire. Like, how dare you? What are you doing? We're, we're not supposed to do this to each other. We're, we have a common enemy here, the conservatives and the Republicans. And it takes two to tango, and those two have been tangoing for a long time, and I would argue that it is worse than ever. But it may not be good for business, for the media. And, Howie, I'm sure you've seen some of these statistics that have been flying around social media the last few days, the just tanking of clicks and eyeballs and ratings across a lot of not just partisan media, but mainstream media, New York Mm -hmm. Times, Washington Post, their year-over-year numbers, their traffic on their websites have just, I mean, cratered by huge, huge, tens of millions of clicks. And I wonder how some of these journalists feel about all that because it's it's a tenuous situation journalism is a tough business and you see places go under and reporters laid off all the time uh 
you know, often that's you never want to see anyone suffer, but that's reality. Yeah, but when you lose half of your traffic, as the Atlantic has, Liberal Magazine, the Crusaders against Trump, ABC News losing half, Los Angeles Times almost losing half, and there are some conservative sites that are down too. I mean, because you're comparing it to a year ago when we had a pandemic, a presidential campaign, and we had sure. Donald Trump. I mean, Trump almost always famously said, "You're going to miss me." He would tell journalists because your your numbers are going to tank. To some extent, that turned out to be true, in part because Trump was a master of stirring up controversy and making a story into a third and second a second and third and fourth day story and fighting on Twitter and and Joe Biden is the temperamental opposite he uh, he tries except now Facebook he accuses them of killing people but that's out of character for what even the New York Times has pronounced a boring president so a lot of the traffic is tanking and I think um, we have to figure out how to cover uh, Washington and the world when you're not in the Trump era. And we have to figure out how to cover it more fairly and aggressively, even though it alienates so many of the people who became the base for the yes. New York Times and CNN and MSNBC and the Washington Post because they had something in common. They couldn't stand Trump. Yep, and I think you'll see that when some of these mainstream outlets will occasionally wander off and perform some journalism that is unhelpful to the Biden administration. Right. No, their their own audiences get furious. Like, you know, how how can you do this? It's sort of the exact same effect that we were just talking about. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to get the bad guys, not our guys. Aren't Mm -hmm. we all on this same team? And these journalists, you know, probably to a person in a lot of these newsrooms, eagerly voted against Donald Trump. They wanted him gone. They loved all like, you know, the the Pulitzer buzz and the old school newspaper wars and all this stuff to negatively cover the Trump administration. But to the former president's point, be careful what you wish for, because now that this, you know, bet noir, this white whale has been slain electorally. Now you're stuck with a much more boring situation and it's not good for the bottom line. And a lot of these bottom lines were a little sketchy to begin with uh, for a lot of these media outlets. And, you know, and part of the reason is perhaps a huge reason. I talked to a friend the other day who's left of center. He said he would watch MSNBC almost every night during the Trump administration because he just felt like he was part of something and he really couldn't stand Trump and these people were telling the truth about him and he Mm -hmm. just wanted to feel like there were other people who were angry the way he was. During the Biden presidency, he said he he doesn't watch news or do anything with news anymore. Uh He's just sort of like, I'm not interested anymore. This is why all the Trump books are getting so much coverage, because the journalists are getting nowhere covering the <laughs> arguably more important stuff. Infrastructure, voting rights, all these bills that are going nowhere, congressional gridlock. It's a snooze. And so here's another book. So Donald Trump said this, that, or the other outrageous thing. Uh, and it just shows you they, they can't quite break the addiction. Yeah, no, they're definitely addicted. And then they are excited when he gets, for example, thrown off of social media. And I'll note that last I checked... Uh, the repressive Cuban government and some of their leaders still had verified Twitter accounts and were able to tweet communist propaganda. That's apparently okay by Twitter. Trump couldn't do it. But they're like, you know, yes, we've got him again. But then that's another source of their addiction that gets cut off. And all of a sudden they, they have the shakes and they're sort of sh- they're rocking back and forth in the fetal position in a corner because there's not enough Donald Trump to feed this beast that they've all become so accustomed to and built an entire kind of uh, model, business model around, and when the center of that business model is someone that you hate and then is gone, 
there are problems. And love I think it's a very a lot of, yeah, lot of that, hate, but love the numbers. Love the that's a, the ratings, exactly love right. the clicks. Exactly right. And at the very least, it's something for you and I to talk about on a regular basis. So there's that. Howie Kurtz. He is the host of Media Buzz every Sunday morning, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Fox News Channel. Howie, always appreciate it. We'll see you back on your turf soon. All right. Thanks, Guy. Take care. It's the Guy Benson Show. Back after this. Guy Benson will be right back. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. What's wrong, Pepper? I can't whistle, but everybody else can. Never mind. I'm making cookies. Would you like to lick the spoon? No, thank you, Mummy. Can I ring Susie Sheep instead? Okay, Pepper. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. That apparently was a soundbite from a show called Peppa Pig, which I guess is a big hit with young children here in the United States and elsewhere. Can you tell that I don't have children? Some of my friends are like, oh, yes, we know all about Peppa Pig. And I guess during the pandemic, a lot of American kids watched a lot of Peppa Pig, in which the characters speak with British accents. And some of these American kids are now developing, maybe not British accents completely, but are starting to say certain words with British accents or using British turns of phrases or different terms for instance holiday instead of vacation and these children are shocking their parents they're like where are you getting this so my question is how much peppa pig do these kids have to watch to actually start to affect the way they speak in real life maybe these parents are plopping their kids in front of these screens for a little too long christine does this sound Realistic to you? Where do you think I learned my amazing British accent? Not Peppa Pig, because those are nice British accents uh, that we just heard. I'm Peppa Pig, and this is my brother George. Yes, uh, Peppa Pig was huge in our home for a few years, and Megan once asked us, uh, she said, Mommy, when will I get a brother George? And that's when we realized we were plopping our daughter down way too much to be watching Peppa. So we had to pull back. They're calling it the Peppa effect. Children snorting like Mm. pigs and using cheeky British-isms, according to the Wall Street Journal. I actually had a friend who lived over in the U.K. for about a year, and she started calling soccer football. I'm like, no, no. It is soccer. (laughs) We're Americans here. And I feel like if this continues, if Peppa Pig is going to wield this influence over our American children, I think we have no choice but to throw Peppa Pig into Boston Harbor, just to remind everyone who's boss. Because we won that war and the follow-up war for a reason. We love you, Brits, but we don't need your accents influencing or infecting America's children. That's my hot take for the day. I've never seen this show. I think that should be perfectly clear. It might be a nice show. And British accents are, in fact, generally quite pleasant, especially the ones that we just heard, not from Christine. The happy hour continues next.
GuyBensonShow.com. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Glad you're here. Earlier today, we spoke with Dr. Mark Siegel. A lot going on, of course, with COVID and the Delta variant, discussion about vaccines. We wanted to get to the truth and to the science and to the medicine, and we did so with Dr. Siegel. Here's part of that interview from earlier in the program. So I just want to mention this briefly. We don't have to dwell on it, but on social media today, a lot of people have been sharing, for example, a short clip from last night's show of Sean Hannity encouraging people, urging people to take COVID seriously and saying that he believes in the science of vaccinations. And a lot of people who are just constantly looking for reasons to criticize our network, Fox News, are saying, oh, Fox is suddenly, there's a memo that went out. It must be the case. Fox is suddenly pro-vaccine out of nowhere. And it, it shouldn't annoy me because a lot of these people are just being obnoxious trolls and haters, but there are also, you know, verified blue check mark, media critic type people who seem to be buying into this. And what bothers me about it, Doctor, is how many times have we had you on this show for months and Dr. Sapphire and Dr. Neshwat and Dr. Manny? Uh, we have had you on this show, you guys collectively, at least once a week for months, and I'm not alone. You guys have been all over Fox News Channel, Fox Business Programming, all the Fox platforms as far back as the vaccine existed. We were promoting the vaccine back when it was still the trial results were starting to get published. And I, you can speak personally to what a lie it is that our network has been, you know, anti-vaccine or whatever. There haven't been pro-vaccine voices. Our whole crew of experts, medical experts and doctors, have been extremely, consistently, respectfully pro-vaccine since late 2020. And it's just, it's a pet peeve that I'm venting to you about (laughs) to start the interview. But I just wanted to put it out there for the record. And I know that you can back me up on this because you've been one of those doctors making this case over and over again on the biggest platforms our network has to offer. Well, I want to give you a long answer to that, if you don't mind. First of all, I know Sean Hannity well, and he's a guy who actually pays a lot of attention to medical issues and concerns. He's given me many phone calls over the years about that. He's punctilious. Number two, a number, many, many, many of our anchors and people at Fox News have called me for my advice on this, and a vast majority have taken the vaccine and have talked about it on the air. Number three, I've been studying vaccines for 20 years now. I've written books on flu vaccines, on vaccine hesitancy, on the issue of the swine flu fiasco in 1976, how we had a vaccine against a virus that didn't exist. This vaccine I heard about over a year ago. I was one of the first people to talk to the NIH about it before it even came out. I thought it was never going to be this effective. When it came out and it was this effective and, and this safe, I was all over it. I talked to the people on the FDA advisory committee. I know all of these people for many, many years. In December, I took the vaccine on the air. I showed it arriving to NYU Langone Health. And, and did it as I did lives, what we call lives in the business guy. I did lives of the vaccine arriving for the first time, full of excitement. I interviewed the first person to take the vaccine on the air on Fox News. My full discussion with Dr. Mark Siegel available online at GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free on demand every day. Absolutely no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio app. 
Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and many more options. When we come back, the home stretch reunited, and it feels so good. The whole team is back. Yes, all four of us in action today. We will regroup and talk about what else? Food. As soon as we return. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. So let's see. For July 4th week, I was gone. Then producer Christine started her vacation early, the Friday of that same week. Took the ensuing week off. Took yesterday off. Max was off yesterday and Friday. So it has been quite some time since we've had this whole crew together really virtually, over the radio, but in one place working on the show. I mean, it was down to me and Quiet Wyatt, Friday and Monday. And Justin helped us, but, I mean, we were able to keep this thing on the tracks barely. But now we are made whole again, the team of four here at the Guy Benson Show. And we'll say that it feels so good, because those are the lyrics of, of the song, the reunited and it feels so good song. But I feel like... At this stage, producer Christine, as you alluded to yesterday, because you joined us by phone for the home stretch, you were ready to jump back into this. I feel like you're a very hardworking person, and to have seven consecutive work days off, I'm sure was enjoyable, but maybe pushing the far edge of what like your internal clock and motor will allow. Yeah, that was, that was enough days for me, probably even a little. By the way, who told you I was off that Friday before? Because you were not here, so I want to know who ratted me out. I, I have keep that very quiet. No, I have informants. I have informants, yeah. and I was actually a little bit taken aback by that because I was like, Ooh. "Is the you know Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Monday? Is that not good enough?" And it's not like you were traveling abroad. I mean, you were staying in the Northeast. But, I mean, you do you. I wasn't here, but that that's an awful lot of time off. Maybe I have to crack the whip and make sure that you're here for the rest of the summer, just chained to your desk, because the show barely survived without you. By which I mean, actually, we were fine, and we actually got some really good guests that we were unable to book, in fact, when you were working. Like the governor of Texas. Whoa, I mean, whoa. I, I'm just, oh, just going to know. So we, we couldn't get Greg Abbott. Then you go on this luxurious, <laughs> very extended vacation, and bang, all of a sudden we're getting yeses from people. I mean, I don't know. Does Quiet Wyatt have some some magic? I'll, I'll just be kind and say that you've trained him very well. Oh, and sorry, Wyatt, to do this to you. But let's not forget, Cookie booked a lot of the show before Cookie left. It is true. Sure Quiet you, Wyatt had yeah, you booked time. You booked at least one guest per day. For that whole week. That is true. But not Greg Abbott. Not Greg not Abbott. Not Greg Abbott. No, I, I, that, was a, that was a good booking on Quiet Wise part. No, not Greg Abbott. But, um, you know, I feel so comfortable enough that I've trained Quiet Wyatt so well that I can take <laughs> off as many days as I need to to yep. relax, 
um, you know, some rehabilitation, I mean, some just rest <laughs> and relaxation. Because you're, you're back from your spa day yesterday, which some people may describe as being discharged from your rehab facility, but it seemed like you had a nice day. That spa, I wish, I wish everybody could go to that spa for one day because it was unbelievable. I spent eight hours there. Oh, That's my gosh. How much fun it was. Eight hours at a spa. Yes. Oh, I feel like I would be bored. Bored, bored, bored after like two hours. Like, give me a few treatments and let me out. Were you glowing? Were you glowing on your big 4-0 because of all of these special, expensive treatments that they were putting you through? Well, I I was for a while, but then I came home with this raging, raging migraine. And what Bobby and I, what Bobby and I realized is I was doing so many saunas and so many salt caves and clay caves, I dehydrated myself so badly that I gave myself a headache. Go figure. Only Cookie would come back. You got to (laughs) hydrate. You got to hydrate, and not with what you would want to drink. Like, you have to hydrate with water or Gatorade, not Mama's Juice, which is actually a desiccant. So you probably, maybe next time before you put yourself through eight hours of this, you should talk to one of the doctors here at Fox, and they can give you a few tips to avoid a raging migraine at the very end of the first day of your 40s. That, that's an inauspicious start, Cookie. It, it was a rough start. Uh, it, was, it was an early bedtime for Cookie. So, <laughs> I was a little surprised. So yesterday in general was a very busy day because I had meetings in the morning. Then I had, of course, my usual writing at townhall.com. I had this show, three hours. I had guest hosting for Kennedy between 8 and 9 in primetime. That's a live show. I had another conference call for another project I'm working on. It was just a lot, and I didn't get all my writing done, so I had to do that after Kennedy's show, like starting at 10 p.m. So it was a long day, and I had an early morning today to get on the train to get from New York down to D.C. in time to do the show do some laundry, repack everything, and then I'm heading back to the airport. So I'm not even spending one night at home, which is kind of a bummer because I miss Adam. I miss Roy, the dog. I would like to spend one night in my bed. But look, it is what it is, and I spent so much time in this house during COVID. We'll all be fine. But the point is it was a pretty frenetic pace. So after Kennedy's show, so it's 9 o'clock. I'm in Midtown. I'm hungry because I had not really – eaten on a normal schedule. I'd had a salad for lunch at like 11 a.m., and now it's 9 p.m., so it'd been 10 hours. But I also didn't want to eat a huge, heavy dinner, even though I was quite hungry, right before bed. Plus, I'm trying to, you know, exercise more and be a little bit better with my diet. And yet, I could not resist the siren song as I walked by of Chick-fil-A. So here's what I decided to do. I go into the Chick-fil-A. I got their chicken nuggets, which are very small, but very good. So I got a 12-piece of their little small chicken nuggets, and then I got a side salad. Then I had a Coke Zero, no surprise there. So this is actually a very responsible meal. Little chicken morsels, side salad, Coke Zero. There were two other products that I really wanted but I knew I didn't want to do all the carbs, all the calories, so I was, I was struggling. Here's why I ended up doing this. was my bargain with myself. 
I wanted waffle fries. And I was not planning on this, but I walked in and I saw on the menu the seasonal item that I've not had since 2012, actually. And I remember this because I had it for the first and only time previously on a road trip driving from D.C. down to Charlotte for the Democratic National Convention in 2012. But I remembered this so well, even though it's been, whatever, nine years. As soon as I saw it, I said, I really want to have that. And that is Chick-fil-A's summer peach milkshake oh my goodness i wanted it so badly but i'm looking at that uh that calorie count which is i believe 600 calories for the milkshake and i said is is there a small and they said no it's just one size they said it very nicely because they're extremely nice at chick-fil-a and they say my pleasure and all that stuff so i made the decision and i was like agonizing over it and i think they actually almost were amused by this whole little performance but i truly was trying to decide what to do i got a small waffle fry order and i got the peach milkshake and the bargain that i made was i'm going to eat half of the fries and stop and i'm going to drink at most half of this milkshake, and stop. And by the way, what's so good about the milkshake is not only does it have, it's not an overwhelming flavor, but it's just, it's subtle. It's got a little whipped cream on top, which is so good. And then chunks of peach, real peach, in the milkshake. Oh, it's, it is fantastic. So I had the meal in my hotel room all in front of me, and I ate all the chicken, I ate all the salad, I drank the Coke Zero, and I have to just pat myself on the back because it was very hard. I stopped halfway through the fries. The milkshake was even harder because I was just it was just like saying, drink me. It was that delicious. So I drank half of it, and then I marched over to the bathroom, and I poured it down the sink, the rest of it. I said, I, I need to literally have it no longer available for me to even look at or consider drinking. And that's how I... I upheld my bargain with myself, but it took quite a lot of self-restraint. But I guess I pulled it off. Christine, you have to try. Have you had the peach milkshake? I have not, and now I feel like I want to uh, end the show and go get one. Maybe Megan will split it with me. Yes, do that. Two straws. Yeah, yeah. Because then I could just take a couple sips to try it yes. and then just give it to her. You're because not going to be able amazing. to stop. I know. That's my problem. I mean, it's the same thing with mama's juice. Once you start, you can't Oh, what? <laughs> different. Different. Different reasons. Different, different. So yeah. we might have to send you to a different rehab for peach milkshake. <laughs> Once you try it, and, and just to be clear, he, she didn't actually go to rehab. In case anyone is not picking no. up, that's a joke. I want to. I just want to. We we give her a hard time. She she did not have to go to. She went to a spa for her fortieth birthday. I I just wanted to clarify that. But no, seriously, you have to try this peach milkshake. It is. I will say it is worth the calories. It is worth the calories. It's that good. And they only have it a few months out of the year. So it's not like you can get addicted to it and just have it year-round. It comes in the summer. It's a, it's a very summer, fresh kind of taste for a milkshake. It's the chunks of peach that really do it for me. I think I could even, you know, not do the fries, not do the chicken nuggets. I think I can go just for the milkshake. Okay. So that's also, also an option. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's going to happen. 
In the meantime, this morning, I got up early to get the train to get back to D.C. in time, and I knew that I wasn't going to make it for this you know, four-hour train ride without something to eat. So I was at Penn Station a little bit early, and I saw a place that had bagels. So I walked over there, and bagels are something I don't indulge in often. But I was in New York, and I was like, we've talked about bagels on this show multiple times, and it had been, I would say, years since I had a bagel, honestly. So I, yep, so I marched right over. I got a sesame seed bagel, lightly toasted, with a chive cream cheese and lox, and then a fresh-squeezed orange juice, and I brought that on the train, and I was so excited. But again, I was like, okay, this is not exactly a super healthy breakfast, and it's like it's a carb bomb first thing in the day. So my deal with myself was I was going to eat half of the bagel, almost kind of like open-faced. And I mostly was able to keep disciplined. I had half the bagel with all of the cream cheese and lox, and then I may have had like one or two stray bites of the other side of like the bagel bread. Oh, it was so good. And I was reminded why bagels are fantastic. But I'm I'm done, I think, for a while with bagels. But I, I do wonder, especially Max, did my order meet with your approval? That is approved, guy. Thank you. <laughs> uh, there was a slight delay. He had to think about it, but uh, the, the algorithm came back, and it is approved, and it was awesome. So I've done a little bit of treating myself for my last few meals, but with the catch. And I've also been pretty good about working out. It's just like, Christine, you know, the metabolism. You get in your 30s, and it's just like, oh, you have to work a little harder for stuff. And then, I mean, you'll have to tell me about your 40s because I'm still a ways off from that. But you're there. Welcome to your 40s, Christine. Happy birthday. Welcome back. Well, thanks. The gang's all here. We're reunited. It feels so good. We'll be back here tomorrow from Indianapolis, Indiana. It'll be the Guy Benson Show. We'll talk to you then. Listen to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.